Welcome to another episode of iBuzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the Pause platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and I'm delighted today to welcome my friend and colleague, Tim Sullivan, who's the curator of behavioral husbandry at the Chicago Zoological Society, the Brookfield Zoo in the US. Welcome, Tim. Thank you, Sabrina. It's great to be here. Yes, really looking forward. We haven't seen each other in years. We've done webinars, seminars together <laughs> in person in wonderful places that we'll talk about. But yeah, I can't wait to connect with you and your family again sometime soon, you know, in person. Yes, coming soon, hopefully. Yes, yes, yes. Perhaps another wonderful animal welfare, you know, symposium oh. at the zoo or so. That would be really, really good. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, if people are watching this or listening to this in a rebroadcast, it is uh, October 2021. So, you know, a lot of us haven't really traveled anywhere and, and COVID is still still ongoing. So, of course, uh, but this is a wonderful way for us to connect and, and talk about the, the animals and, and, of course, you and your work. So and we always like to start podcasts and these video conversations with an early story of you connecting with, with an animal. So perhaps uh, you want to start uh, with one of those stories. Yeah, you know, I've uh, like every small child, I, I come from a family of five siblings. So we, there were seven in our family. And we had pets as well, everything from turtles to hermit crabs to dogs. Uh, so I've always had animals in my life. Uh, I grew up uh, in a suburban area outside Chicago. And before it became more sprawling, uh, we had lots of uh, swamps and marshlands that were nearby. So we, as kids, they my parents would kick us out of the house and uh, we'd go out and just explore and find snakes and frogs and insects and just kind of play around in those environments. So animals were a big part of that. And surprisingly, I grew up five minutes from the zoo I work at. So as a family, we would go to the zoo all the time. And so it was a cheap form of entertainment. So my parents would bring us there and we just wander around the zoo all day until we got tired and, and head home. So the connection with the zoo has always been there in my life as well. So were you already thinking of like maybe working at the zoo when you were little or it was more like you would go there and you would enjoy, you know, it has beautiful, you know, green spaces. And of course, you can see the animals, but did already entering your head like, oh, this is what I would want to do. It didn't. No, it didn't didn't come into my uh, thought until I was about 17 years old. Uh, and I don't know if I want to get into that story, how I got into the into the job in the first place, but that's kind of how there was this kind of awakening in my mind where uh, I realized I needed to get a job <laughs> as, a, as I was becoming an adult very shortly. Uh, it was interesting. I was working at a Burger King as a, a nighttime manager uh, because I was a competitive swimmer in, in high school. And so it was the only job that allowed me to practice after school and then have late hours to earn some money to you know, pay for my car and gasoline and all that as a kid. Uh, but there was this moment uh, when I was a senior in, in high school where I, I had ascended to that, that swing manager position and the big boss came in one day and he goes, Tim, someday this is gonna be your store. 
And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I said, I don't want to work at a Burger King. I have to get a job. And it was this whole, everything started coming really through my head. It's like, what, what am I going to do for a living? Because I, I never really thought about it uh, as an immature 17 year old. Uh, and I really, I, I, it shocked me and I quit the next day. And wow. my, yeah, and my, my parents are going, but what are you going to do for money? You need a job. And I said, I don't know. And my mom goes, well, you know, you like animals. Why don't you just work at the zoo? And I, and I said, that'd be great. But I think you need to know someone to, to work there. That was kind of the rumor that had gone around. Uh, but she said, well, go and apply and see what could happen. And so I did. I went the next day to, I walked into the administration building and I said, um, I, I want to apply for a job. She goes, what job do you want? And I'd always been enamored with uh, the dolphins and the marine mammals at the zoo. Even though we couldn't afford to go into the presentation, the show, we'd watch them from underwater where it was free. And I said, well, I'm a swimmer. Maybe it would be good if I work with, uh, is there someone like an attendant position for the dolphins? He goes, oh yeah, you're, you're applying for that position. And apparently there was one open. And so I, I said, yeah. And so I, I signed up, signed up the uh, application form and she goes, you know, the curator is right upstairs talking to the zoo director. Maybe if you wait long enough, he'll come down and give you an interview. And sure enough, he came down and lo and behold, this was a man that lived three blocks down from me that went to our church. Uh, and uh, we weren't necessarily friends of the family, but we knew each other. And so that was my in. And I had an interview and he did everything he could to um, tell me how bad and terrible the job was. Uh, but that still sounded great to me. And so I accepted the position and that's how I started my career in the Marine Mammal World as a part-time attendant, taking tickets for the Dolphin Show. I was a certified scuba diver. So that was really a, a good resume builder for me for that job. So I was in there scrubbing algae off the pools. And so I go, this is a pretty good job. Maybe this is something I could do for a living as a career. Oh, that is just wonderful. It's just amazing, right? And it's interesting. You said, oh, I need a job, right? Because like the Burger King job was clearly not a job in that sense of what it meant to you, what a job is, right? So, uh, and, you know, and then, yeah, your mom, like, let's, let's just go and do this. And amazing, right? How these things just uh, come together. And that's my whole life. My whole life has been uh, opportunities that present themselves to me that don't necessarily make sense at the time, but your your life goes in different directions and you come to crossroads that, that you didn't know were there until you ran into them. And then you make choices and it ends up the way it does. And I've, I've had a very charmed life that way where I've made decisions that weren't based on anything logical. It was by feeling and ended up going to a pretty good place for me. Yeah, and that's amazing. And I think this, you know, your mom and, and you, like you you said, you know, you grew up in, you know, all these animals and going to the zoo and this passion that is there, you wanted to work with animals. But then, you know, you also talk about, obviously, you know, feelings and, and getting there, but then you also have really studied, you know, how the theory of training and animal welfare, and you, you work in a lot of different domains, and you train and teach and, and interact with a lot of people. And, um, and you know, you and I have done some seminars, you've come to Europe a few times uh, to teach. So perhaps, you know, there is this thing about passion and, and wanting to work with animals. But then there is this other part of craftsmanship, right, of the theory and the practice and really getting good at and what then helps us in our passion um, in showing up for animals. So perhaps you can talk a little bit to that in the importance sure. of, of skill building. Yeah, I was, again, another very fortunate uh, happenstance that I walked into at Brookfield Zoo as at, in the marine mammal area. 
I was very fortunate to have my kind of assistant manager at the time, uh, Dr. Randy Brill. He was an operant psychologist. And so he was immediately um, exposing me to the science of animal training, of operant conditioning, and he would give me books to read. Uh, and so that was, uh, and I, did, I just thought that every marine mammal trainer got that exposure. I also had a really good direct supervisor, uh, Brenda Woodhouse, that was a, a, just an amazing trainer. She had this connection with animals. Uh, she was more on the outside where she could read animals and just kind of a natural trainer. And so I had that aspect as well as the science. And uh, so that's how I was really, I entered into the field. And that I didn't know until later on in life that that was unique and that that would help me form uh, the mastery of uh, both sides of the of the skill set, the, the uh, animal training side from an artsy standpoint, and then the science side, which for me became much more important because it wasn't common in the field and it was something that I started to understand early. And so I had something to give to the community, both uh, in my own zoo, but when I started to go out of my zoo to work with people, that the science side became very important uh, uh, piece of knowledge that I had that wasn't necessarily common at the time back in the early 80s, mid 80s. Yeah, so when, you know, when we talk about craftsmanship, of course, we are talking about both kind of holding the skills of the practical and, and some people are, like you say, very natural, you know, animal um, trainers or in, you know, they, they can read animal body language, behavior, interpret it, you know, react to it. And, um, and then, of course, we mean the scientific sense. So perhaps can you talk, uh, maybe starting at like an animal welfare perspective, a little bit about, you know, caring for animals and then maybe, you know, going into the specifics perhaps of animal training. What are some of the things people need to really get good at if they want to work with animals? Yeah, it's... Uh... It is a very broad topic for sure. I think that's where sometimes you get too close to the animals, you get too task oriented. So you wanna create this behavior or you wanna solve this problem. And sometimes it's very important to step back and look at how that, what you're trying to accomplish, how it fits into the animal's natural history. Uh, is it the right thing for the animal too? Uh, we, we set goals and objectives for our animals uh, from our uh, needs and wants but we also have to look at it from their perspective, uh, that are we asking them to do something that wouldn't necessarily be comfortable for them, even though it's not going to hurt them physically or mentally, but is it the most important thing to them as well? And sometimes you wanna look at, as you're planning, uh, I, 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 looking back now, uh, I was very task oriented because I was immature at the time and I didn't, I really just saw them as a tick list that I was given a job and I had to accomplish that. And I never put all those pieces together. I never thought of it as a life experience for the animal. Uh, and that to them, that was just one part of their day. For me, it was a job. And so uh, looking back, I wish I would have had that perspective of uh, looking at it from the animal's life experience and how to how does that one task, that one behavior I'm training fit into the the broader sense of their life, their experience in general. And uh, I think uh, from if I, as I talk to new trainers now, I want them to always have that perspective. Uh, this has been my life is to keep people from tripping over the same logs that I tripped over when I was young, uh, saving them both the challenge, but also making them a better trainer, uh, more uh, a thoughtful trainer, I guess, is, is a word I would use uh, so that they can think about the animal in, a, in the bigger picture all the time. Because from a welfare perspective, I think that is the, the key is always keeping that perspective that what we're doing in the moment 
has impacts uh, in the future. And that if you have that broad perspective, you have a better chance of making choices that are good for you, but also good for the animal. And, and that I think is uh, a, a key perspective I try and give trainers these days. Yes, wonderful, wonderful. So I hear you really say about, you know, the, the well-being of the animal from the animal's perspective, and that's in welfare, we talk about animal-based indicators, right? Understanding their, their experiences and uh, their perceptions, and then, you know, how we show up care-wise, and then being a trainer is kind of a subset of that, right? Because we are caregivers, yeah. caretakers, and, and a part of what we do happens to be, you know, thinking about learning and, and training specifically. And so perhaps you can talk to us a little bit about, you know, animals learn, uh, we're training them whether we like it or not. And, and so perhaps you could talk a little bit to that topic and how important it is to keep that in mind. Yeah, you know, again, a, a piece of learning I, I didn't gain until probably a decade into my life or more into my career. Uh, and that um, uh, training to me was that 15 to 20 minutes that we had put into our calendar. It was very regimented and structured, and that was training to me. Uh, but the, um, the idea that the animals were learning all the time didn't come till later in life. And it was unfortunate because there was so many opportunities that I missed because I didn't understand that. Uh, and now that I do, and I can share that with uh, up and coming trainers that I touch every day or when I go out and on con consultations, that they're, the animals are in better hands now because of that understanding to know that when all parts of our, our care that we give them, there's opportunities to create an approximation that might help you in, over a long term. Uh, we feed the animals outside of training sessions. We provide lots of reinforcement and environmental enrichment in our own attention and contact. And if you think about that from the point of view that the animal is learning and that you can use that as an opportunity to uh, advance some of the uh, kind of more formal projects that you have with them. You know, for me, I was working eight hour days. You have probably six hours of training that you could be doing as long as you remember that when you're walking by the animals or their habitat, that there might be an opportunity to create an approximation or to shape the behavior a little further. And over time, uh, that creates this efficiency and understanding that when I'm in their presence, when they see me, hear me, smell me, that those are all opportunities for learning, both good and bad. And so if we don't, if we take that time and thoughtfully use it, uh, we can become much more efficient in our jobs, but also uh, it, it allows us to stay connected to the animal in that level from an understanding, from a learning perspective it, for more hours. And that to me, I think is very helpful for all aspects of animal care. Yes, wonderful. So you, you talk about, you know, good and bad, and we're going to talk about lots of, you know, how beneficial it can be. And perhaps uh, you can talk to us a little bit also, again, from a welfare perspective, you speak a lot about resilience, you, you speak a lot about, you know, dealing with uh, either concerned behaviors from our perspective, but also what we think for the animals or undesired behaviors. So perhaps you can talk a little bit to that topic in relationship to the well-being of animals. Sure. Uh, and that's something I, I was, from a resilience standpoint, I was doing things that were building resilience, but I didn't understand the concept at the time. I didn't know that it was something that I should leverage a little bit more. Uh, but I did find that a lot throughout the zoo. When I, and I talk about just walking by the animals as part of my job, I, I'm a very, I know, I'm maybe not unique, but I'm always using that as an opportunity to engage with the animals in a fun and playful way. 
Like when I was walking by the Dolphin facility, I would play hide and seek games where I'd be walking by, I would see that I get, I got their attention and I would just drop down below the wall and hide. Or, or I would just do something weird. I'd start spinning in circles or put something on top of my head uh, so that it was walking by wasn't just uh, a passive part of the day. It was something that provided interest to the animal. Uh, and, and in doing that, unknowingly at the time, I was exposing them to novelty, to uh, the world was a little bit different when Tim was in it. And so I always took pride in that because I thought it made me different uh, and it made me uh, more interesting to the animals because uh, I was like a, a free entertainment. <laughs> when, when, when Tim was around, weird things were going to happen and I got a chance to see that. And so I, I took pride in that and I continue it today when I'm walking through the zoo, I'll, I'll catch a lion's attention and then I'll just kind of drop behind a wall. And, and I'll peek around one side and I'll go to the other side of the wall and peek the other way. And all of a sudden this cat is up and he's looking and they're going into a predatory mode and we play these games. I'll do that with every animal that I walk by. But this is something uh, that from an informal standpoint is very helpful, but from a formal structured way, again, it starts to expose the animal to change. And uh, you know I've talked about this before where I've worked with animals uh, both uh, kind of tangentially, but also as a part of my job, where the animals had very little resilience. They were put into these um, glass cases, uh, and they're, they're because these are animals like hoofstock that are very reactive to environmental change. And the the right answer is often counterintuitive. Uh, when uh, a keeper in, with oral copies, for instance, when they saw the animals get reactive to something that happened that startled them, they would tick that off and say, don't do this again. And every time they saw the animal get reactive, they would stop doing those things. And they started creating more sterile environments for the animals, which sounds like it's a good thing, but actually it's the worst possible thing you can do because all of a sudden you're, you're developing an animal that is not resistant to change, that is uh, affected by novelty in a negative way. And so you, you produce an animal that uh, can't cope with change very well. And so it took a while to, for me to start to understand that better, but also to develop actual plans to build resilience from the moment an animal is born and throughout their life, because that's how you really need to do it. And it's surprising in the zoo world that we were so attentive to our animals that the dog world was doing a much better job at this. Uh, I just recently got a puppy about three years ago uh, from the shelter and they handed me this piece of paper as a, uh, 12 new things in 12 weeks. And it was beautiful. It was like, put, put their food bowl in different spots, 12 different ways, introduce them to 12 different people, take them in the, to a different place in the car, uh, use, uh, you know, change everything, but do it sl slowly, but in a way that change becomes part of the animal's life in this very critical part of the developmental stage. And I thought, this is beautiful. It makes sense. It's easy to do. It's easy to understand. Why can't we be doing this in the zoo world? And so that's really uh, about three or four years ago, I started really thinking about building resilience through structured change to the environment where change becomes the routine. Uh, because to me, routine is the enemy if it's not structured properly. And so I spent a lot of time over the last four years talking about that and finding the best, most efficient way to uh, include that in our animal care programs. Yes, wonderful. I always remember your stories of the crystal okapis like you know be careful that they don't break and uh like you say you know this kind of counterintuitive of 
like, oh, you know, that, that doesn't work. Um, so let's try not to do that again, instead of, you know, thinking about that, of course, you know, okapis and other animals, they have evolved also to deal with lots of changes and things. And, um, and, and like you say, building that sort of, you know, ability to bounce back from, you know, perhaps negative um, or difficult situations and the challenges that animals face uh, in, in the wild as they would, but um, in what way can we create these environments or our sessions with the animals and, you know, and I guess paper, perhaps in extension of that from a training perspective, can you talk um, of resilience and failure and uh, setting animals up and, and also that, you know, um, it's okay to, to fail for animals? How does resilience play a role in that? Yeah, uh, I've done a lot of thinking about this. I, I wrote a, a presentation for the International Marine Animal Trainers Association years ago um, called The Yin and Yang of Positive Reinforcement Training. And uh, that's where that came from an experience uh, from a change in my life when I was uh, kind of reaching uh, this uh, level in my career as a marine mammal trainer where I, I had ambitions to move up into a supervisory position, uh, but my supervisors weren't leaving. And so I, I had to find another way. And so I took a, a right-hand turn into elephants, uh, elephant training where the zoo was moving to positive reinforcement training, uh, protected contact, getting away from traditional elephant training where coercion and, and force was used to this more ethically uh, beneficial and, and welfare beneficial way of dealing with these animals. And so I was putting together a positive reinforcement program. But that's where I really ran into uh, an animal's mindset that was, you know, basically in a environment where coercion and force was being used, punishment, negative reinforcement was being used to manage their behavior and to create learning. And I started thinking about that uh, as we started to transition from that system, that uh, type of mentality to positive reinforcement where the animal doesn't have to do the behavior, they want to do it. And watching the elephants um, and seeing their change in attitude and, and how it took them quite a while to understand the difference between that and that they had choice and agency that they didn't have to do something, but then it's on the trainer to make the environment in, in such a way that they want to do it, that there was benefit for them. And so this really made me think about that. And it brought back these images of me working with dolphins. And I'm like, well, yeah, we have, at the time we had nine dolphins. And they all responded to positive reinforcement training a little bit differently. Some were really excited about it and others just didn't seem very motivated by it. And I, I didn't understand that. And I wondered at that point, what might've been involved in that kind of attitude towards positive reinforcement training? Why aren't they all excited about coming to training sessions every day? And I did think about it as a child. I was uh, a part of uh, a learning environment that included uh, nuns. I was in a Catholic elementary school. And at the time, punishment was very much a part of learning. You did something wrong, you got punished. And some, sometimes it was physical. They crack you over the knuckles with something if you did something wrong. Uh, that's all changed, thankfully. But I realized that I didn't, I didn't enjoy learning at the time because failure to me kept, brought me farther away from uh, enjoying that part of my life. And it took me years to find a, an environment when I got to university where I realized that learning doesn't have to be that way, that I chose the classes I wanted to be a part of. I had good teachers that really reinforced me when I did something right. And I wondered if that was the problem with animals is that they were experiencing too much, too much failure. Uh, and so I, I, 
I wanted to kind of make this connection between my experience in school and the animal's experience and how it might form your opinion of the learning process uh, for you know, humans in, in school or in general and for animals within our training programs that we produce for them. Uh, so I had this question where I went to my uh, sister was a teacher with a fifth grade elementary school. And I asked her if I could teach, uh, talk to some of her kids. And I, I said, I just have two questions for them. One question was, uh, why do you study for tests? And why do you do your homework? And so each kid came in one at a time and I asked them those questions and recorded their answers. And it was as I had, had hypothesized, half the kids um, did their homework and studied for tests because they wanted to get good grades. They were aspiring for positive reinforcement and recognition. And the other half of the kids wanted to avoid getting bad grades. They, they didn't want to get in trouble with their parents. And that was the motivation for them to uh, work and try and get better grades. And these are all average students. These were uh, a C grade or higher. And so it wasn't the bad kids. These are kids that were the, you know, the majority of the kids in school. And so that kind of, it was, it was kind of garbage science, but it, it really helped support uh, my theory that the amount of failure and the, the perspective and the attitude the animal has towards learning has an effect on their attitude about the process. And so I really started to think about, um, we have to be careful and, and reduce the amount of failure. Failure is a part of learning uh, and it's very powerful. Uh, and so you have to use it, uh, you have to make sure it doesn't happen a lot, but we have to make sure that uh, our programs are in such a way that over the, the length of the animal's kind of learning career, they experience much more reinforcement than they do, uh, you know, bad outcomes. And so that to me was important about how the pace in which I trained, uh, instead of taking big leaps from one approximation to the other and, and being comfortable with two or three or four failures in between before they figured it out, I said, well, maybe I can do an approximation that's in between a smaller step and that they would be more likely to succeed there and not fail. And to me, that was the kind of the key is that pace, the tempo of your training, how you set them up to succeed, where you had more steps, but actually they learned faster because there was less failure. And because of that, their attitude towards the process was better. So that to me was really, really important. Yes, no, absolutely. That's just wonderful. And, and we have to become creative. You know, you call it garbage science, but I think it's still pretty cool because we have to, we can't directly ask the animals. And of course, we're not comparing, you know, children to animals, but at least we, we have to try and see, okay, in what ways can we gain insights into motivation uh, of others that also are learning? And then based on your own experience, and I dropped out of school when I was 17, because I didn't like learning, you know, that's kind of uh, environment either. And I love uh, studying and I love learning stuff. And but it was really the context and how mm. things were done. And so it really brings us, you know, to questions of, you know, we talked about the why, you know, why are we training uh, animals? And, and then, of course, we ask questions of how, how do we do that? Um, how do we engage with the animals, build relationships with them? And as you say, you know, trying to reduce um I, I think I, a while ago, I can't remember how long ago, but I remember seeing also Karen Pryor writing this, this whole section on micro shaping, also drawing people's attentions, right? To we take these big steps and we can uh, go fast, uh, you know, by going slow in that sense, by just making uh, those steps smaller. But I also, you know, it's also interesting to think about in what way is that sort of, 
you know, the how related to, because we often in learning talk about you either win or lose some sort, but then there's also this kind of perspective, you either win or learn, but then what is it that you're learning, right? And what I hear you say is let's set it up in a way that the learning, the process of itself is really uh, positive. So it's, it's not just, you know, well, if you, if you don't succeed, then you, it's not about losing, but it's in what way are you learning? And, uh, and those sorts of hows are really important. So perhaps you can talk to us a little bit more about that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's huge uh, because this, again, if, you're, if your focus is so narrow on the behavior you're working on, you tend to miss opportunities, but also you might set yourself up for a long-term failure over time. Uh, you know, I, when we started doing, I was involved in lots of uh, structured empirical research with marine mammals uh, when I was there. And I, and I, you know, those are very regimented training sessions. You, you, everything has to be perfect. So you don't add a variable in and, and to confound the, the research that you're doing. And it was really hard to keep animals motivated for that because you couldn't be, I couldn't be Tim. I couldn't do all sorts of crazy things. I had to be very much uh, focused and in, in, uh, robotic to the animal uh, for an animal that was used to me being different. And so I think that in itself was hard. But I also realized that we have to think about what we're training, not today or this session, but over a week, over a month, over a year, so that we're, we're the animals, from the animal's perspective, what's their experience with the learning process? If we can keep them excited about the learning process, training is going to happen a lot faster. And so you have to look at, research was one part of that, but I wanted to counterbalance that with some fun sessions where reinforcement was, the value was high for very little effort, or we just go out and have fun. So you're not always uh, like having a, a whole school year full of organic chemistry or something really hard. You're going to hate school. It's just too hard. You're, you're always being challenged to the, the highest level physically and highest mental, uh, mental level that learning isn't fun. And so you have to counterbalance something really hard and, and structured with something fun and exciting for the animal. And if you look at your training sessions and developing a schedule over a week or a month where there is variety in there, that the, the animal starts to enjoy the process more because uh, it's not always hard. It's always, it can be fun. They have more agency in some scenarios than they do in others. And so that giving that, that control back to them, giving them choice in what, they, what kind of sessions they're going to be. You can play around with that. And I think that's super important. Again, looking for opportunities to give animals choice is going to want keep them more engaged in the process itself. Yes, absolutely. And I think especially, you know, as, as we are caring for animals or working with people who care for animals, it's like choice and control. They are these really an agency. There are these real buzzwords and that, you know, we talk about all the time. And then uh, I know you and I have like in seminars or when we're talking, we're always like, okay, so what does that then look like in practice, right? So how do you make that real? And whether it is, okay, what sort of session do you want today? Or where, or, you know, what is it that you want to do? And it also makes you go to these areas where it becomes also kind of weird or uncomfortable because if, if we say that this is some sort of communication between us and the animals and I'm saying, hey, can you please come over here? And they go, no, not interested right now. I should be like, okay, great answer <laughs> because I'm asking you, right? Because that sort of awareness to me is super important when, especially if a lot of the food that animals get 
They get it from our hands and they get it contingent upon some sort of behavior compliance, right? So it's really, it, it makes you again, really explore these, these lots of shades of green that are out there where, you know, we're thinking about, okay, learning, training, animal welfare, and, you know, being respectful of the answers, if you like, that animals give us when, when we ask them to collaborate with us, right? Sure. And I think that puts the responsibility back on us to uh, arrange the environment in such a way that we are important in those times when we want them to come to us. And sometimes that's a balance between offering them the same reinforcement uh, without you in the picture, uh, the counter freeloading concept, uh, but also uh, in the environment in general. I think you've, you probably know I, I'm a big fan of using automated feeders in habitats uh, to give animals the opportunity to earn their own reinforcement by going out and foraging. Uh, I've spent the last probably 10 years of my career trying to remove keepers from the process, which seems weird. But to me, we are both uh, the agent of success, but also can be the, the challenge or the hurdle to achieving higher levels of welfare. And so getting animals off the meal plan where we, you know, we, we chop up all their food for them and make things really easy and then present, present to them in a very routine way at times that are convenient for us, but not for them, uh, isn't the answer, but that's tradition in zoos. And so I've been trying to bust that and saying, how do we get the animals more connected to their environment and taking ourselves out of the picture so that when they're hungry, they can go out and start foraging for food. And the only way to do that in any practical way in a zoo is to have food available in the environment, one that the animal can trigger themselves or that it, it gets presented to the environment in a uh, random way where if they go out and make the effort to go out and forage, that there's a chance that they might be successful in finding food. And, and timed feeders and automatic feeders were ways for me to do that in a practical sense uh, and remove the keepers farther away from it. And, and I think there's so much more we can do with this, uh, but we're just kind of at the, the edge of the beginning of understanding of how to do that properly. Yes, and I think it's a wonderful segue into a topic you and I have talked about a lot, which is you know the habitat the management of the habitat of the animals, the environment, whether that's front of house or the back of house, and you know the concept of environmental enrichment and what does that mean today? And um, so, you know, I know a little bit what you're thinking on this, but it would be really good to hear some of uh, of your thoughts around that and how, of course, the learning and training ties into that. Yeah, um, you know, I came into environmental enrichment uh, as a as an understanding of my weakness in my skill set. I thought I was a pretty good animal trainer uh, as I, because I, I worked 16 years with marine mammals. Uh, and of course we provided enrichment to our animals as we understood it at the time, which enrichment was a thing where we gave them something, we gave them a toy. It was so rudimentary. And of course it, it had a benefit to the animals from our perspective. Uh, they, they seemed to be enjoying it. They were interacting with the things we were giving them. But then as I started to explore the academic side of enrichment, uh, I think the first enrichment conference I went to was in Edinburgh, and I was exposed to all aspects of the research and, and how uh, people that were really studying this uh, as, a, as a, their primary part of their career, I said, wow, I, I know nothing about this. I, I really have to work at understanding this. But I also think that I came in at a very crucial time in the understanding of this discipline of enrichment that we were learning that it wasn't a thing, it is, is a process. It was about uh, changing the environment in such a way that was 
valuable to the animal and not necessarily something that made us sleep better at night. Cause I think that's what enrichment was. I would, I would find a toy, I would toss it out there. They'd play with it and I could sleep better because I made their lives better. Uh, but that really was uh, such a rudimentary uh, understanding of where this is going. And now in the last 20, 20 some odd years, uh, it has really taken off uh, in, in a really good way, uh, both from improving animal welfare and understanding of the power of modifying environments, both in a, an enrichment standpoint and as a design uh, uh, parameter when you're building new habitats, that we're, we're still learning, but we're, we're heading in the right direction where uh, the, just the term itself is becoming obsolete. Uh, to me, enrichment at this point is a transitionary period where we've, we have an understanding, it's a testing period, and then that leads us to an understanding of how we can modify the environment or create environments that don't need modification, which I think is the, the key success here. Uh, because everything is in retrospect now and we have to be more prospective about uh, creating environments that are better for animals based on what we've done in enrichment over the last 20 or 30 years. So I'm still learning about this uh, and, and I continue to try and uh, find the kind of the, the visionaries out there. And there are many, uh, Greg Vincenzo from San Diego Zoo is, I, had, I listened to a talk he had a couple, about a month ago about creating experiences for animals that get rid of that term enrichment and he was, he was really challenging my mind. He talked about the fact that they had the story about goats that they were taking care of at the zoo and that he realized that these goats uh, normally have these beautiful winter coats they develop uh, because of the need. It gets colder and your body physiologically responds by building a thicker coat. But what he saw was we built these environments for animals that we put all these heaters in that, to keep them comfortable and they never had the, the opportunity or need to grow a thick coat. And he started thinking about, well, is that really the best thing for them? Should seasonally, they, that, that stimulus of changes in temperature, changes in photo period, should we not try and stunt that, but actually leverage it? Uh, I think we're so afraid in caring for animals on a professional level that uh, we, the animals experience any discomfort any stress at all. And so we try to protect them from that kind of back to the crystal copy thing, but at a physiological level too. And is that really the best for them? And so I think that type of thinking where, you know, at first when you say, well, stop providing the goats heaters so they can grow a thick coat, people go, are you kidding me? You're going to let them get cold. <laughs> and I, I think there's those challenges. And I, I want to keep my mind open to that all the time, because I always think about the future. I know we look back at how, People uh, care for people 100 years ago. They did blood bloodletting or weird medical procedures. That was an important and traditional thing to do at the time. And we look back at it and go, what the hell were they thinking to do that? And I think about what are people going to think about what we're doing now, 25 or 50 years? And is there some way we can open our minds up to the future and be able to practice it a little bit to test it so that in 25 years ago, yeah, they didn't know this piece of information that we know now, but they did the best with what they had. And that's, I think, the best we can do in our present state. But we also have to think about evaluating everything we do and going, is this the best thing for animals, uh, the current way of thinking? And so I like to get those challenges because uh, it keeps your mind thinking and it keeps you wanting to uh, always make these incremental improvements. From a welfare standpoint, I don't think we could ever set a goal that is perfect from a welfare standpoint. We don't understand it well enough. And, and the reason we don't understand it is because our knowledge keeps growing. So the, we keep setting the goal higher because we learn more about the animals. 
So I always say the best thing we can do is shoot for better. And we can do that in an incremental way. So that is you're always looking at what you're doing with every animal you work with and try and find something a little bit better than you did the day before. If you're always pushing that ball forward, uh, that is a good measure of success because we don't necessarily know where the end goal is, but we know that we stay within these kind of guardrails and we learn every time we bump into a guardrail, we go another way and it keeps moving us in the right direction. So that's my kind of philosophy on welfare improvement is don't don't get all wrapped up in the word and setting a, a perfect definition of what best welfare is. Just shoot for better. Yes, no, absolutely. It's like, uh, you know, some of the writings along that we are looking at some guiding star, right? And, uh, and not distant shores. We're never going to get there. We are, you know, it's always evolving. It's always dynamic. And, uh, and, you know, like you mentioned, the timers and other ways of creating different environments that offer choices and control for animals that are, you know, related to learning and perhaps to time contingencies of when animals would be feeding um, naturally, perhaps. And, uh, and at the same time, how do we create these other sorts of environments uh, for animals where they can make those choices, especially also because we're not there a lot of the time. But um, yeah, really thinking through what does that mean uh, for animals, you know, the choices that we make and, uh, and what is in the best interest for them. And, you know, before we go dive a little bit deeper into some of your writing, can you talk to us a little bit about like the benefits of animal training, perhaps some of the species you've worked with, and um, also some of the, your skill, you have some wonderful stories around your skill development uh, of your mentors. Yeah, um, it is interesting. Uh, again, uh, how I got into this career, it, it, the my career and my life experience as a human being kind of evolved at the same time. And as I continued to mature, grow older and mature, my perspective changed. A, a perfect example, the first kind of aha moment, this light bulb that went off is really in my career when uh, you know I got into marine mammal training and my goal was to produce the best uh, behavior for the show possible to get the maximum applause and it would be spectacular. And because that was the mark of a good trainer back, you know, in the early 80s. And we, we gave awards for that. <laughs> and so that's what I was shooting for. But then I saw this video of trainers out in California taking a voluntary blood sample from a killer whale. And it blew me away. I, I, a, I didn't think it was even possible. So that in itself was shocking to me. But then I realized, wow, this is a measure of a good trainer. This, because this has obvious benefit to the animal and our ability to care for them. And so, yeah, of course, we started, we got a whole pile full of needles and started looking at ways of getting dolphins' tails because uh, we didn't know how to do it. So we kind of just moved on with uh, kind of trial and error to try and figure this out. And I was successful in getting blood from a dolphin. And I saw a video of somebody doing a surgery on a sea lion or doing a tooth extraction. I'm like, oh my God, this is incredible. I didn't think that was possible. And then I realized, don't put a ceiling on what's possible anymore. Look at what how we can take this technology of, of positive reinforcement training and push it further. And, and these this was the, the space program in marine mammals at the time was to try and get to the best way to have the animals voluntarily participate in their own care. And so that really was uh, groundbreaking for me. And, and it really forced me to look at what I was doing differently, that um, 
yes, I had this obligation to put on a dolphin presentation every day for the people. But in between, we we had this obligation to provide better care for our animals. And so medical behaviors, uh, better management of our animals through positive reinforcement training. There are all sorts of new uh, buckets of behaviors that we could produce. And that created challenges because we had the same amount of time <laughs> to do our training. So how do you fit all this in and still do a dolphin show? And so we got more efficient. Uh, we, we started looking for things, efficiencies in our training programs. Did we have to do 20 minute sessions? Could we get the same result in a 10 minute session? Uh, and, and we could do those more often maybe. And so we really started to look at our, how we partitioned our day to be able to do more training, to do create more behaviors for all these different buckets of uh, outcomes that we're looking to achieve. Um, so that was really uh, uh, an amazing change for me to understand how, how to do that. But, and that training, I wasn't gonna be defined by the animal I trained. That was a maturity thing because it was cool to work with dolphins back when I was 20 years old. It was that you were the kind of the, the person to talk to at the bar or whatever. And then that, but I matured and said, you know, I wanna be, I wanna be known for my skill as an animal trainer. And I was very fortunate that the, Dr. Brill uh, gave me another great piece of advice early in my career. And he said, Tim, the best thing you can do for your career from a professional development standpoint is get the hell out of Brookfield Zoo as much as you can. I'm like, okay. He goes, go visit other marine mammal facilities, learn from them, because you're very good at Brookfield Zoo in this environment with these five animals at the time, but there's a whole world out there that can help build your perspective. And I took that to heart and I started taking all of my holiday and vacation time with my own money to go work at other facilities. Uh, I would ask them, I'd send, well, it wasn't email at the time, it was a letter. I would send them a letter. <laughs> it sounds weird, doesn't it? I had to send a letter, uh, put it in the post box and send it off. And then I uh, said, can I work for you for free for a week or two weeks? Uh, Cause I want to learn how you do things. And so I did that. I, I think I visited probably 30 or more marine mammal facilities in about a 10 year time. Uh, my colleagues thought I was stupid for taking my vacation, my holiday and using my own money to go visit other marine mammal places. But it was so exciting to see how other people train their animals because they use the same general concepts, but they did it differently. The art was different. How they managed their animals were, was different. And there was great examples that I put in catalog to my brain. And there were some not so good examples that I cataloged to put in my brain. And both are beneficial as you're, you're kind of finding your way in the future of your career. And to me, that was the most important aspect of my professional development. It was building that greater perspective, that broader perspective, uh, because you can't be an expert if you're, if you're in a little tiny pond with one or two fish. You, know, you have to be able to get out there and experience more. Yes, no, I, I like that a lot. And I think, you know, I've had similar experiences just working different places, getting lots of, and also in, indeed paying for a lot of it and using your time. So we all do that and, and how beneficial it is. And, and to keep that open mind, you know, like with the goats, you know, if the goats usually live in that sort of geographical area, then, you know, it makes sense that they're going to be okay. They have evolved to grow a thicker coat. And, and, um, and of course, other animals might not actually be that from that geographical area. And therefore, you know, we might decide to train them differently or do keep the heat lamps, right? But this sort of, you know, open mind and, um, and, and staying really receptive to like, yeah, maybe I don't agree with that or I would do it differently. Uh, but I am going to store that information and uh, and also 
keeping that dialogue open, right? Because I think, uh, especially when I started as a trainer, also you would be, I was like highly critical of like, why are they doing it this way? Or why are they doing that way? And uh, we all get into these sorts of modes. Well, now I try at least to understand, right? Why are they doing it this way? And uh, in what ways would you, can you get to the same uh, behavior or train something and going places and talking to other people also I think you talked about maturation uh, whether it was species but it's also in our you know ways that we communicate and learn and and show up when we are talking training which can be quite uh, can get quite animated let's say that <laughs> you know and, and, I, and that was one of the other benefits of traveling around was I saw the future my future and, and other trainers that had been in the business for 20, 30, 40 years. And I saw a trainer at one remote facility that did the presentation. He looked tired and unengaged in the process. And I go, boy, I don't want to be that guy. How can you get that way working in this with these great animals and this great job? How can you get that disheartened by the process? And some of these people would be very close-minded. They were very traditional and wouldn't wouldn't look for new ways of doing things. They weren't open to change. And I said, boy, I really don't want to be that person. So as, a, as I'm almost 60 years old now, I, that is what I fear the most is to become that person that I, I didn't like, that I didn't like how they were when they were at that age in their career. I wanted to always keep myself open to that. So I'm always protective about what I feel strongly about. And I get challenged by a piece of information that conflicts with that. And I, I, I get that flag or that buzzer that goes off my head said, stop, listen, like you said, ask questions about it, try to understand it better uh, to protect from being that person that is unwilling to change later in life. Yeah. And that's a hard one, right? Because we, we're talking about, you know, uh, learning the theory of operant conditioning or some really, you know, and, and then there's all these other skills <laughs> that, that we need to learn. And one of them is, you know, to be able to kind of watch ourselves and listen to ourselves like how do i listen how do i show up how do i react and uh, and as you say you know just like we can put in animal welfare you know programs we can put little flags if you know the criteria drops below this or goes over that you know i get an email or i get a, a ping uh, notifying we need to put notifiers in our own uh, heads and hearts to you know stay attentive to for example and and being comfortable with change and being comfortable with being uncomfortable uh, because yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a dynamic world. So, yeah. You know that one of my uh, perspectives that I talk about a lot is this idea of self-fulfilling prophecy yes, and yes. that how my, how my attitude and perspective at the time can affect the animals. Uh, and I, I noticed this, uh, this, what, again, another epiphany in my mind came out of a personal experience when I had to do a, uh, the International Marine Animal Trainers Association, you know, has their annual conference at different facilities every year. And it came to Brookfield back in 1990, I believe. And, you know, so all the best trainers from all around the world come and you always do a, a dolphin show for them or some marine mammal show. And I was responsible for doing the dolphin show in front of all these colleagues, people's books who I'd read and people that I admired, all these mentors. And I was nervous. And I went up there and the, the first part of the dolphin show exploded. There was animals are fighting and they're jumping all over the place. And it was brutal. Uh, it, it ended okay. And, uh, and but I was down. I, I was trying to force myself to keep a smile on my face because I was really bummed out. And a, a friend of mine, a colleague from SeaWorld, 
uh, Scott Clappenbach, he talked to me after the show and he goes, I, I know you I saw that you kind of were upset about how the show started. And I said, yeah, and he goes, have you ever, are you aware of the concept of self-fulfilling prophecy? I go, oh yeah, that's like mystic thing, you know? And, and, and he goes, no, no, but you know, it's actually real. It actually can have a, a real change in how things happen around you. And he goes, let's go have a beer. And he sat me down and he talked about it. And I'm like, wow, this is, I never thought about it. I, didn't, I wasn't convinced at the time, but as I continued to to go out and do my job and watch other people train, I started noticing how their behavior, their attitude was changing the animal's behavior. And so I did more and more study about this and decided to write a paper about it. And it is super important to come in uh, with the right attitude. Uh, and again, self-fulfilling prophecy can work against you when you have negative thoughts that, oh, uh, you know, I was told that this animal is having a bad day. So I'm going in there expecting the animal to have a bad day and how that animal sees me and because you're, what you're thinking actually comes out in your body. And we're working with animals that are super sensitive to change in the environment. They pick up on subtlety because that's how they stay alive. And so if they see that you're uncomfortable, that makes them uncomfortable. And so you, that what you expect to happen actually does happen. But the reverse of that is if you have positive self-fulfilling prophecies and you present yourself in that way with that attitude and mentality, you can then help animals see that from you and produce a better outcome as a result of that. So there are all sorts of ways in which to uh, prepare yourself to have that right mental uh, attitude going in. Uh, and you see it a lot with uh, professional athletes or Olympic athletes where uh, I, I bring this up in the talk where you look at the Olympic divers and you watch them and they're on the board and they're in their head, they're thinking about their dive, they're uh, watching it, they're feeling themselves go through the motions, and you can actually see them moving their bodies back and forth as if they're in, in space doing the dive. And doing that as well as um, thinking about what, what it feels like when you hit the water, when you splash, or uh, if you kind of bring in other sensory modalities, it helps to cement that, that vision in your head, which is your, then you're going to kind of produce that in the actual uh, behavior that you produce and what you show to your animals. So that's what you can do with your animals. You come into a training session knowing exactly how the animal is going to look when they're when they're successful and what you did to create that success. And you practice that in your head first and then go out and you're more likely to have that happen in real life. Yes, that's that's wonderful. You know, I, I remember the first time you and I worked together and you came to Europe, you you said, can we go uh, and see the room? you know, where, where we're going to be and what is there. And uh, I didn't see you close your eyes or anything like that, but what it was very clear to me that you were doing, and it was only afterwards that you, that you talked to me about this. And then, and then you talked also about, but you said, I, I really want to feel where I'm going to be in space and walk onto that stage and look into the room and get a feel for where I will be tomorrow and, and how I can connect with people. And, and, you know, and I thought that was such a, such a wonderful way of you know preparing as you know a teacher as a as a co-learner in in this you know journey that we're going on to in a three four day seminar on animal training and well-being and and um yeah i guess that's that's another of these things that we do whether we're working with animals or with people or in whatever context uh, but that always left a really really yeah. um, deep impression on me yeah <laughs> yeah 
And uh, yeah, some of these, you know, seminars that, that, that you and I have done, one, and I actually, thinking about Edinburgh, I wonder whether that was the first time you and I met at the enrichment so. in 99. Yeah. And, and also when, uh, when you talked about like uh, keeping an open mind and animals be challenged, right? The late Graham Law, he, he presented at that time on, you know, this, this sort of idea of, you know, being very careful around animals and the Crystal Okapi story that, that you talked about. And uh, so it's also very interesting. Um, some years ago, together with Professor Gordon Berghardt, we had a seminar in the Netherlands and he said uh, to me, you know, half joking, but half, of course, very, actually very serious. He said, do you want a new idea? And I'm like, sure. And he's like, <laughs> it's like, make sure to look, you know, in the past of these things that, you know, there are so many things in animal welfare and animal behavior and animal cognition, animal play, which is a lot of his domain that we know, but we're not necessarily using it yet. Or we are forgetting about that that knowledge is already there. And, you know, like you mentioned earlier in the podcast, are we bringing that attention into how we care for the animals, right? That a lot of the things are already known, but are we actually, you know, closing our eyes and practicing and going through it and bringing that awareness to everything we do all the time and staying open to change? So... Yeah, no, it's, uh, I, I have uh, a couple of good uh, reference books for uh, applied operant conditioning, and I keep them on my desk, and I've read them a hundred times, and I read the words, I understand the concepts, I don't truly understand them in practice, and one day I'll be out watching a training session for someone else, I go, oh, now I'll see a problem, I go, that's, that's what that means, that's, that's overshadowing, where there's too many stimuli in the environment, and one stimuli is overshadowing the one that we need to work. And so that brings that concept home and I realize how I can then apply that. And so I continuously go into those books and read the footnotes and look at all the citations because there's information there that you'll use in the future once you have the actual need for it, when you actually see it in practice and it, and it comes to life. And then you add that to your repertoire and you be, again, you, you start to enhance that mastery of our, our skills and, and our understanding of what we're doing. I have also books like that that I read uh, over and over again. And, and also this realization that there needs to be, we often talk about foundations and how things are kind of built on and, and you know, things get into the tissues and, and, and some of the things you, you just don't get yet because, you know, you're now working on this and then you can, you're now working on this, you know, so it's not like, oh yeah, I'll do that once, or I've read that once. And it's hard to understand certain things until perhaps you have trained animals quite a bit or different species quite a bit. So you become sensitive to some are more auditory focused or some are more, you know, and I have it with, with English is not my first language, but I sometimes have it with English words where suddenly I've been using it for years and then suddenly I'm like, oh, wait, like there is some composition within the words that, or the root of the word that I didn't get. And now it makes even more, more sense. And so like that is true for animal training or any other concept too. Sometimes we don't get it and we need some sort of base before we really get things. Yeah. And the hard part is that while I'm developing these under, the deeper understandings myself, that is meaningless unless I can teach it. <laughs> and so understanding it myself and then teaching that same awareness with the people that are in front of me that are, are, are part of my team 
is then the next challenge is how do I get that information to them in a way that they can understand it that deeply? And that is what's really challenging uh, because I was really good with animals, but then I had to become really good with people. And that in itself is, the, I think, the greatest challenge. And that's why I, I, I kind of joke with people. They, they'll see me at a conference at a, a training one-on-one course. They go, what the hell are you doing at a training one-on-one course? I said, well, I go to everyone because, especially if it's a new instructor, because they're going to say the same thing in a different way. Yeah. And the way they say that, I, I, I get this, the, I guess the arrows in my quiver grow because I have different ways in which to express and communicate that same concept to a person that may need that specific example to help them understand it. Because it's taken me, uh, I remember I couldn't, there was this misunderstanding I had early in my career between negative reinforcement and positive punishment. And I couldn't understand the difference between the two, reading it, and, and I would read it 10, 15, 20 times, and I couldn't understand it. And somebody finally told me, you know, that it's, they both use aversives, but one is an antecedent and one is a consequence. And just explaining it that way to me, I go, oh, of course, it's an, it's an order of, of those things, not that the relationship changes. And, and to that, that was what really told me, I have to have a whole lot of different analogies and metaphors and, and ways of explaining things so that the next me out there, I have the right tool to get that piece of communication to them. Yes, no, absolutely. That It so resonates with me because sometimes I'm like, oh, um, let me go and find that presentation I prepared from whatever, 10 years ago, because there's that photo in there that I want to use. And then you open these presentations and you, and I look at some of the stuff and I'm like, hmm, I wonder how well I actually did in teaching it <laughs> because like I'm having a hard time understanding uh, what, you know, so it is really this thing, you know, they, they don't, they, it's not for nothing. They say, you know, to really get good at things, you teach them to others and find lots right. of ways Right. And we have different ways of learning. Some people are very visual oriented or they need stories and some people need to see the numbers. And yeah. So in, like you say, lots of different opportunities and stories there. And I guess this really also takes us to your working with AZA as, a, as a, you're not only working in your in your zoo and consulting, you know, teaching and coming over to this side of the pond. Uh, but you're also working at, a, at an association level. So perhaps you can talk a little bit about your work there. Yeah, the, the AZA Associations of Zoos and Aquariums uh, is our accrediting body here in the U.S. and North America. And I think they've kind of expanded internationally a little bit as well. Uh, but they uh, provide professional development opportunities for their members. And I, th I think non-members, too, can, be, uh, can join. And I'm in a, on the instructor teams for both the environmental enrichment course. It's a five-day course that happens in uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom every spring. And I'm also on the instructor course for the applied animal training uh, uh, course out at Denver Zoo. And I love teaching. Uh, this to me is my passion. Uh, there's, for, for a couple of reasons. One, I love working with people and, and mentoring them. And because I was, I was, I'm the product of mentors. And so I really appreciate that, that people spent their time to, to help me. And so I'm trying to pay that back. And I, I do find intrinsic reinforcement in that because the same kind of reinforcement I got when I was working on an approximation with the animal and they finally got it. And I felt, wow, yay, they finally got it. I see that in people now. So the benefit of that is when it happens with a person, that means they're going to affect 10, 15, 20 other animals. So I'm, I have a multiplying effect by teaching people. So to me, it's much more rewarding to do that. So I, I look for every opportunity 
to teach and mentor where I can. Uh, because if you care about animals, you care about more than the animals that you work with. You care about all animals that are under human care. And so uh, I've dedicated my life to really going out there and providing mentorship myself or developing other ways for people to continue to develop their skills and knowledge and mastery of this because they're going to affect animal behavior at a larger level. So yeah, ACA is a great outlet for me because these are great courses. We get 25 or 30 people per class from all different walks of life, Aquarists and uh, you know people that are uh, just getting into the business to get really experienced uh, zookeepers. And so that allows me to work with them on those various levels uh, to hone my skills of teaching because you have to say things in different ways and, and use different examples for people from different walks of life, different uh, career backgrounds and different uh, places in their career uh, cycle. Yes, wonderful. And and talking about associations and you know work, you are one of the co-founders of the Animal uh, Behavior Management Alliance. And perhaps you can talk a little bit about what that organization is about and, and perhaps how it got started. Yeah, that was that grew out of the the kind of this organic transition that was happening from the marine mammal community to the zoo community, uh, where uh, we would go to uh, a, a, the Marine Mammal Trainers Conference, and some of us were talking about the fact that we were being asked to go out and help develop training programs for other uh, species in the zoo. And we realized that there was this uh, absence of knowledge that was, you know, well practiced and well understood in the marine mammal community that could benefit animals outside of that taxonomic group. And so we said, boy, it would be great if there was an IMATA for zoos. Uh, a Marine Mammal Trainers Association for Zoos. And we said, well, there isn't, you know, maybe we could make one. <laughs> and none of us had any experience developing an organization or a nonprofit uh, business. And so we just decided to meet with other kind of like-minded people. And we had probably 10, 12, 15 different people that met uh, in Pittsburgh back in the late 1990s and decided to try and make a thing uh, that we could reach out to the zoo community. And so the Animal Behavior Management Alliance was born uh, in 1999, and it's grown uh, significantly from them, and I'm really proud of it. I've removed myself from the leadership because I, I had like two or three rounds of being on the board of directors, and I also realized that I need to remove myself from the leadership because you, you need new blood to keep coming in so that the organization evolves, and so it is, and it's, so it's, it's great to watch now as kind of a proud parent to see how they're doing and uh, it was it was a very exciting uh, and proud part of my life as well wonderful yes and it all has to do with one of very important lesson here or nugget uh, wisdom nugget of change right this this change the constant things are in cycles so many things in in our lives in of this planet are in cycles and that's also part of that right uh, different different blood different ideas um, you know, variations on the same kind, but yeah, this whole sort of things of change. And um, you've done quite a lot of, we're coming, kind of wrapping up the podcast. There's a few, you know, other things that I'd love to hear your thoughts about. And we already spoke about welfare and behavior and training. And can you talk to us a little bit with regards to, you know, managing of undesired behaviors or stereotypic or, or solving um, animal behaviors in behavior management. Yeah, um, I can. I consider myself a, a, a pretty good problem solver. I love 
um, solving challenges and issues. Uh, somehow my brain likes that. <laughs> so uh, I've, I've tried to get good at it. And so the problem with that is the second you're solving a problem, you're always, it's, I call it firefighting. You're, the fire is already happening. And so you got to put it out. And then there is value in that, but that's not where the real value is. It's keeping it from happening in the first place. So when I got into this job, uh, my current job as curator of behavioral husbandry, that's all, I mean, 80, 90% of my job was firefighting. I was going out there and solving behavioral problems. And while it was enjoyable to successfully fix a problem or make it better, uh, I realized that the real goal is to be more proactive and make sure that these problems don't happen in the first place. And that's where you have to invest your time. And the hard part is you can't invest your time until you fix, you get more time. And so I had to get rid of these firefighting episodes to go there. And so I started working more on educating the keeper staff at my zoo uh, so that they would go out and work with their animals in a way that would create less problems. And as there was a slow change from reactive to proactive, uh, I would have more time to teach and develop skills and so on. Uh, but it's taken a long time. Uh, but even if you're uh, you know, successful at getting rid of uh, kind of problems that could have been avoided, there are going to be other problems that pop up. Uh, it's just how life is and, and change. And all animals are different. Their temperaments are different. So you know, 90% of the animals of that species do well in your environment. But those are the outliers uh, that are on the other end of the spectrum that are more predisposed to problems. They're, they're going to have issues like stereotypies or self-injurious behavior. And you have to deal with those. And so um, some of the problems are very challenging. Uh, stereotypies and uh, the like, uh, oftentimes, once they occur, are very challenging to change. And this is my, it goes to my better philosophy. Sometimes the best you can do is to make it better to uh, create a, an environmental change or a change in your management process that reduces that behavior to the point where it's not a welfare issue. Uh, and, uh, and you work from that perspective. But while doing that, you're always keeping your eye open to the next one you can avoid and changing the, the system in such a way that it does that. Yeah, it's uh, these behaviors. I, I don't know. I think we're going to, these are the things we're going to learn about 50, 100 years from now when people go, oh, they were so blind to what was happening. And so, again, as I mentioned earlier, I want to try and keep my mind open to change, whether it's, uh, you know, even kind of the, um, more controversial method about do, do animals of this particular taxonomic group do well in uh, zoos or in managed care. And, and so I know at Brookfield, we had a set of walruses that we had and we, it was really unique to our zoo and we moved them to a new facility, but we started noticing that our, our public kept dropping things in the water. And so the walruses typically ingest everything and we we're having a lot of uh, blockages and you had to do surgery on these animals. And like, this is ridiculous. We put up nets to keep things out of the pool. And we realized at some point this was not a good place for walruses. It's not that walruses can't be in, cared for well in under human care in zoos. This particular exhibit wasn't good enough for that and we had to make it better. And until we could do that, we decided to move our animals out to a, another facility where they would do better until we could change the, our, our pinniped facility in a way that uh, managed their welfare better. So I wanna think about that as well. And it's a, it's a bit of a, it's hard to do that, to, to come to the realization that you're not quite prepared to provide uh, the adequate care for these animals and having the willingness and the courage to make that change. And so I'm always open to that, but 
I don't get there until I've I've kind of exhausted all other options because moving animals from one place to another in itself can cause welfare issues. And so you want to make sure that you're you're weighing the costs and benefits and doing the right calculations. And so uh, we have lots of behavioral tools and environmental enrichment tools now to protect against undesirable, uh, you know, kind of welfare um, drug or deficits that we can have in behavior. Uh, but in the end, if, if the environment can't be fixed, if our processes can't be fixed, then we have to have that uh, option available to us uh, to make sure that welfare is always at the highest uh, point of our ethic. Yes, yes, wonderful. And I think, you know, the key word there, you talk about change, and you also talk about try, you know, you try a lot of different things, you, you know, pull out whatever knowledge theory possibilities, and then uh, if for whatever reason we can't, then, you know, decisions need to be made. But uh, yeah, the best we can do is try. And, uh, and like you say, you know, we maybe look back on things later where we're like, how is it that we couldn't see that? But, you know, we were, we were saying the same thing now about microplastic, but until we didn't have, you know, the, the ways of seeing it, we didn't know they were there, even though it was. So yeah, it's always easy to, um, <laughs> to point at things later. So yeah. So, you know, in conclusion, what we could, um, because actually, you know, there's there's quite a lot of things left that I'd love to talk to you about. So I think we'll we'll just have to come uh, and find out maybe some other time for another podcast. But, um, um, you know, perhaps we could conclude this, this podcast on what are some of your, you know, lessons learned in this career and some advice. You already have given quite some advice. Um, what are some of your major lessons learned? Well, um, I think it comes down to who I am as a person and how I, I kind of approach this career. Uh, one thing that I learned the, through the maturation process in myself as a human being is the value in having humility, uh, to being open to criticize yourself and to understand that you're going to make mistakes uh, and, you're, and the best you can do is to arm yourself with knowledge and skill and, and having people around you that can help you become a better you uh, as a person and as a trainer and as an environmental enrichment provider, as a zookeeper. Uh, you, if, you're not, if you don't have humility, then you're really not open to all that information that can make you the best version of yourself. And so I think that's, it took me a while to understand that. I told you about how I was going through this professional development. I was going out and getting, working in other facilities and getting all this great knowledge. But I came back to a facility and colleagues that didn't have that information. And so even though I had it, I couldn't create the change within there. And I, I got frustrated about that, uh, that you know, they weren't open to seeing uh, this great stuff that I was bringing back to them. But then I realized I was just communicating it poorly. It was on me. You know, I came in changed, but I expected them to be changed like myself. I'd go to a conference and be motivated. I'd come back in a day. I'd just get the next two, three weeks. will calm down. We won't be buzzing anymore. Uh, but then I realized, that's not bad. That's on me. You know, just like animals, the only way you can change a human's behavior is to change your own behavior. And you have to be open to that. And you have to be ready to um, do things differently yourself that might be uncomfortable or you're not good at. And having that humility, though, is the start in, in being open to changing yourself and becoming a better person. Uh, and that's so important with when you're working with other human beings, because that is the key to success. 
I don't care how good you are at training animals. If you can't learn to work well with people and to adjust how you work with them yourselves to create a, a more cohesive team, you're always going to be fighting against the interpersonal dynamics that can cause problems for the animals you work with. And so uh, to me, uh, creating, finding humility, which I did, and then uh, applying it in such a way that makes you a better person, you're going to have a better effect on animals, regardless of your skill and knowledge level. It'll, it's an enhancer. It enhances everything you have, and it opens you up to enhance those skills even more. So I think that's the piece of advice I would give everyone on this podcast. Yes, now that is absolutely wonderful. And I think that's a a wonderful kind of, you know, I always love to ask about future directions. And I think that's a, a wonderful future direction for people. Like how can we show up, you know, as best versions of ourselves with humility, you know, with kindness and, um, and really, you know, like, yeah, change starts with ourselves. And if you have to think about future directions for animals, what is like, if there would be like one thing that you think, let's focus on that, or let's really get better at that. What would that be? Uh, I go go back to a point that I brought up earlier is is, uh, in uh, under personal care, if we're talking about zoos, and that's what I can really speak to, uh, is really uh, trying to be less invasive in the animals' lives. (laughs) I mean, is to really... Again, we talk these buzzwords, agency and choice of control are meaningless unless we can actually implement it in a a sustaining way, a self-sustaining way. And so it's always being open to looking at how uh, we can do our jobs in a minimal way uh, so that we produce an environment that the animal can do their job, which is being them, whatever that might be, in the most valuable and normal and natural way possible. And it's a challenge, and but I think again, small steps don't. We've got a lot of the big things right in animal welfare and animal care. Now it's all about subtle changes, and so we have to find new ways to do things. Be open to changing what we're doing, which is the hardest part. But looking for ways to remove ourselves in the process more and more, uh, so that the animals can be themselves more and more. Yes, wonderful, wonderful. So I think we have to wrap it up because uh, you know I'm really appreciative of your time and. Uh, and, but there's so much more, you know, you, you touch enrichment and welfare and training, but you also wrote, you know, a book chapter on health and safety. And there's the Pygmalion effect and there's really great conversations you and I've had on weight management. So I hope, you know, 2022, we can connect again and talk more about animals and, and everything else. And perhaps, it, you know, you can end on a, on a story. We always love animal stories. So perhaps you can end on a, on a nice story with an animal in conclusion. Yeah. Um, one of the most emotional parts of my career was when I moved over to work on the elephant program at Brookfield Zoo. I walked into an environment that didn't want me there. Those, those animal keepers, the, the elephant trainers, they hated me. I mean, just because they didn't even know me and they hated me right off the bat because they knew what I did and they thought I was going to change their lives and, and what they thought they did very well. And so I came in under fire right off the bat. I mean, they literally told me, we don't want you here. And I'm like, okay, but but we have to deal with this. <laughs> this is where we are. And so I started working with elephants and uh, we had an elephant that didn't want me there either. Uh, her name was Mame. And boy, she when she didn't like things, she got aggressive and she would come at you. I mean, she wanted to kill you. <laughs> it was literally, she tried to reach out and grab you with her trunk and try and bash through the door to get to you. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> I've never had an animal like that before. But I saw something in her. And I think when you work with animals a long time, you see something in their eyes and, I, and it's hard to teach, but you see opportunity. You see kind of that spark that uh, 
you can see a future for them and you can you can um, understand them a little better as you see changes in there and how they're gazing at you. I, I, it's hard to teach. That's one of those things. But I knew that MAME, over time, all that energy she was putting into aggression and trying to kill me, we could redirect that into positive behavior where, you know, she was just frustrated. She, she was being forced to do everything in her life uh, under that traditional elephant training method. And this confusion between the transitions between the two concepts was also frustrating. But I knew that once we gave her an opportunity to have that control, to um, participate voluntarily, that that energy would then be able to produce all sorts of wonderful behavior in a positive way, that it would turn from negative energy into positive energy. And in that year and a half time, I saw that animal change and it was, you know, I'm going to tear up here because it was, I knew we made the right choice with these animals that uh, they were, they were experiencing life and she was older. She was probably a 28, 30 year old animal, but I knew the last years of her life would be better uh, as a result of what we did and the challenges that we went through. And so those are the rewarding things in my life that uh, whether the animal is, you know, newborn or at the end of their lifespan that don't, don't, don't not try. Don't, you have them. It's a terrible double negative. But you have to continue to try. Don't put an animal off. If they're if they seem to be like the worst animal, take it on as a challenge. Say, I'm going to make this better. And again, better is, is the key operant word there is trying to just make their life a little bit better by what you do. And I think that was the story that resonates with me because there's not another animal that will challenge me more than she did. So she set a high bar. And so I, there's nothing that scares me away. And I want to go in and make those changes uh, wherever I can. Yes, and I and I love this story for so many different reasons, but it's like you say, better, right? Trying to make it better, and especially with animals who don't want us there, who are angry at us, who are afraid of us. I mean, it's easy to work with animals who are like, yay, Tim, I love you, <laughs> or hey, Sabrina, yeah, I want to hang out with you. But it's really hard, you know, for us to, um, you know, we have to bring ourselves to be with those animals that don't want us or that are afraid of us or yeah and and to make it better like their perception and make their lives better and how do we you know let them you know choose what it is that they want to do all the things that you mentioned in this podcast yeah i love that story that's wonderful and and seeing it as a challenge right so not seeing it as taking it personal or taking it as a defeat but seeing it okay, this is my challenge uh, for you to change your mind about me or about us or about the environment. That's just wonderful. Thanks so much, Tim. I really enjoyed this conversation and I can't wait to have you back for another podcast. All right, happy. And thank you for the opportunity. It's, it's great talking to you again. We've, it's been a while since we've seen each other, but yeah, I would be happy to do it again. I, I love talking about this stuff. Uh, so uh, I, 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 I'm very much open to an opportunity again in the future. Yes, wonderful. Great.